0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Almost two years ago now, something went horribly, tragically wrong in Nova Scotia. This video appears to capture the dramatic final confrontation between police and the gunman after his 12-hour shooting spree killed at least 16 people, including a veteran police officer, and left traumatic aftershocks in this quiet part of the country where families have known each other for generations and even leave doors unlocked. 22 people were killed in the Portapique shooting spree, the worst mass killing in Canada's history. And in the aftermath, there were so many questions. The big ones, of course, why and how, but dozens of logistical questions that seemed at the time impossible to answer. Right now though, a public inquiry is trying to do just that, to figure out beyond the madman responsible, what else went wrong that cost lives that night and day? What could have been done to save more people, to end the killings sooner? The answers to those questions, at least so far, are not pretty. I'm Jordan Heath Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Greg Mercer is the Globe and Mail's Atlantic Canada reporter. He has been covering this mass shooting since it happened. Hi, Greg. Hi, Jordan maybe just before we dig into it just because it's been a while and the news cycle has not stopped for more than 2 years now maybe refresh us just a tiny bit on the Nova Scotia killings how long ago were they and and who did it what are we looking at here
1: yeah so it was it was almost 2 years ago it was over 2 days in in April 2020 April 18th and April 19th and the span of about 13 hours, uh, a gunman in rural Nova Scotia. He killed 22 people, the worst mass shooting in, in this country's history. And he did it in a really horrific way. He he went door to door in his in his rural community of Porta Peak, um, near the ocean in, in Nova Scotia, killing neighbors, um, burning their homes. He was dressed as a police officer. He was driving a fake police vehicle that he made himself. It looked identical to an RCMP cruiser. Um, and then he managed to escape police, and he went on the road and continued to murder another nine people in communities stretching across central Nova Scotia. And it was uh, it was only uh, on Sunday morning, after 13 hours of this rampage, did police finally stop him by accident when they ran into him at a gas station outside of Halifax. So really just a horrific, horrific event that's forever
0: changed life for a lot of people in rural Nova Scotia. hmm And now... Uh, almost two years later, as you say, uh, there is a public inquiry. Can you explain how and why that came about? And I believe like when we spoke, I think, a little while after uh, the killings, there were questions about whether or not there would be an inquiry and if it would be public. Um, so how did we get here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There were a lot of questions about how they alerted the public while the manhunt was ongoing, about decisions they made uh, when they first arrived at the scene in, in Porta Peak where where this began. And so a lot of the families of victims said, hey, we need a full open accounting of of what went on here. We need to understand the mistakes that were made because we believe that if this had been handled differently, lives would have been saved. One of the biggest things was around how police uh, withheld information about the gunman, that he was driving a, a fake looking police car. They didn't tell the public that for 12 hours. So people pushed and said, we need a public inquiry to answer these questions. Initially, the province said, well, we'll have a an independent review, Um, but that was not good enough for these folks. And they said we need a public inquiry because it has the ability to subpoena, to force people to come out uh, and testify as witnesses. And uh, they eventually
0: did get it. And it's it's now underway. And forgive my ignorance, but I think a lot of our listeners wonder this too. How exactly does it work? What happens during one of these? Is it, is it like a trial in a court of law? Like what's the process? So it's a little different from a trial in that
1: its mandate is not to find guilt or to assign blame. Mm -hmm. The mandate of this, of this inquiry is to. Interview a lot of people. It's to examine the evidence. It's supposed to pose a lot of probing questions and ultimately come up with recommendations for government and for institutions like the RCMP on ways they can change legislation and training and uh, you know how police uh, respond to these events to, to help prevent similar kind of uh, tragedies in the future. That's that's essentially their mandate.
0: What does the public part of it entail? I mean, I know uh, your reporting has been pretty detailed on it, and, and you're seeing a lot of information. Can the average Nova Scotian watch these proceedings go to court and and see them happen in real time? Like how open is this? So this this is the first time where, where any member of the public has been able to, to watch this. So for the
1: first 16 months of this inquiry process, it's been entirely behind closed doors. They've done a lot of interviews with almost 150 people, but that only now are they beginning to share with the public. So there's a there's a large proceeding happening in downtown Halifax right now in in the Halifax, A convention center. And people can watch that online. It's being live streamed. There's a a public viewing area in Truro, which is closer to where the attacks happened, that people can actually go and sit in person and watch a live stream. So this is the first time
0: people can actually feel like they're taking part in in some way. And we're going to get into your reporting in just a second. um, But maybe a general question, just since the inquiry started How has it been going?
1: Well, it started with some drama, to be honest. On on day one, before it began, at least the the public portion, the premier of Nova Scotia came out and he slammed the entire process. And he said the inquiry and its commissioners have been keeping families of victims in the dark. He said they have not been forthcoming about basic things like who the witnesses are that they intend to call, how those witnesses will be handled. They, They have kept the cars very close to the vest. And he said that's not good enough and we need to do better. Um, So the inquiry has kind of been under a lot of criticism in the early days of of these public hearings, and they're only just now giving some lawyers for families of victims a chance to offer ways to change the process and to suggest witnesses who
0: ought to be called to testify. You mentioned a whole bunch of questions uh, a few minutes ago that the inquiry will will seek to answer. What have we begun to learn as uh, public stuff has become available?
1: One of the most eye-opening things is that multiple people on the night this attack began told the RCMP, told 911 dispatchers, that this gunman, Gabriel Wartman, was driving a an identical-looking RCMP cruiser. They identified him. They gave police his name. They said, this is what his vehicle looks like. And police kept that information from the public until the next morning, until almost 10.30 in the morning, before they finally alerted people through Twitter and not through a public alert that would go on everyone's phone, mm-hmm. that this guy was driving a, a, a vehicle that looks like any other police vehicle. It's critical information. And, and people have said, how could it be that this information was kept from us? It would have saved lives if you had have shared this earlier. That's one of the, the, the biggest revelations that's come out. It's just how many people confirmed to the police on the night the attacks began that this is the person you should be looking for. And they just did not share that information.
0: Will the RCMP release the reasons that they decided not to share that information over the course of this? They haven't given a great answer to date, and that's
1: one of the questions that people are hoping will be answered through this inquiry process. But essentially, they said, look, this was a chaotic scene. We were in the middle of a live manhunt. We had started the process to make you know a public alert, but we didn't get to it. And that's, for a lot of the families of victims, that's just not good enough. They, they need a more... F- thorough explanation of how how this mistake could be made.
0: You mentioned that the purpose of this inquiry is to compel people to testify and provide answers and I understand that one of the people we're not yet hearing from is the gunman's common-law spouse, is there? Is there a fight going on over that? Yes, and actually it, it kind of blew up uh, in this morning session of the, the, the
1: inquiry. So Lisa Banfield is the common law spouse of Gabriel Wartman. She's been charged criminally for moving ammunition for the gunman that he used in his attack. Now, police will say she didn't know what he was planning to do with all of this ammunition that he was stockpiling. But she has been charged criminally, and there's serious charges Her lawyers are saying until those charges are resolved, she will not cooperate with this inquiry. And that's angered a lot of people who are looking for answers because she is a key witness at the center of this story. She spent the full day leading up to this attack with him when he apparently drove his route that he would use that night. When he visited the homes of victims that he would later kill, when he even cut an escape route through the woods, she helped him. This is critical information that families say she ought to share this. She has an obligation to share this and explain what she knew and what he was doing and how he was explaining all this to her that they just simply have not had yet. And so they, they really want the inquiry to use its subpoena power to force
0: her to testify. Can you tell me about the level of detail that we're getting uh, from this inquiry that Folks like yourself, who, who covered this in great depth uh, in the immediate aftermath, didn't have at the time. And I'm, I'm thinking here, you wrote a piece uh, this week about the 911 calls that we're now seeing transcripts of. What are those telling us and, and what kind of blanks are they filling in? Well, they're, they're filling in a lot of blanks. And, and to be honest, Jordan, the details are horrific. It's
1: the first time that we've seen these transcripts. These were the first calls that were being made as this attack began. And one of them came from the Blair family. And Jamie Blair is a mother with two young boys in her home. She's the first person to call 911. And she's telling 911, my husband's just been murdered on the deck. Uh, The man who did it is my neighbor. He's trying to get into our home. She describes to the police that he's shot uh, both of their pets. And now he's trying to push down the door of their bedroom that she's hiding behind. Through the transcripts, the, the 911 caller can hear him shoot her through the door. Her two children are hiding behind the bed and they describe all of this in a 911 call about 15 minutes later. And these kind of scenarios played out over and over again, as people called from the community describing what they're seeing. But I mean, this call from Jamie Blair put us in the house at the time of the murder. And it's just, it, you just have to feel for the kids who watch both of their parents be killed by their neighbor and then had to, had to
0: tell someone about it over the phone. And then they eventually ended up taking refuge with another child or children uh, next door, right? That's right. So so Lisa McCulley was a
1: neighbor. She was also murdered. Her children were able to escape the gunman, and and they got together with the two Blair children. And the four kids hid out in a basement for over two hours, not knowing who was going to come save them whether they were safe, and they refused to answer the door until they heard a code word from the police, which was pineapple. And that's when they knew the real police were here and not, not the neighbor dressed as a police officer who was murdering their parents.
0: I know this is really tough stuff to listen to, um, you know, even for for journalists like yourself. But as you speak to people who were impacted by this massacre, how are they dealing with this level of detail coming from something that they originally desperately wanted, right? It can't be easy. No, I don't think it is.
1: I mean, I think, you know, the, the families want this air because they want these answers. But you're right. It's it's traumatic to go through this again, right? I mean, this, this, is, this was a very painful, uh, horrific event that happened to them it's it's turned their communities upside down. But those folks have also not really been able, they tell me, to grieve, to process this and to come to any kind of terms with this attack until these big questions are answered. So they want this to happen. At the same time, it's very painful.
0: Do we know how long this might take or how involved uh, it would get? I, I mean, I have to say I didn't even know th- all the work that came before the public stage of it. So I imagine there's a lengthy road ahead. There is. There's going to be about two months of
1: of public hearings where we may see some witnesses called, potentially cross-examined, although the, the commission hasn't clarified that. There's going to be a lot of what they call foundational reports. That's where the commission is sharing publicly for the first time transcripts of the interviews that they have been doing behind closed doors. And those foundational documents are the basis for the evidence going forward. So by May, this process is supposed to produce a, a preliminary report and a final report is coming in November that must include recommendations to government and, and to institutions like the RCMP.
0: Have government and the RCMP said anything or, or given any indication so far as to whether or not, you know, I'm assuming that these aren't mandated recommendations, right? They don't have to follow them, But but what's their process been in terms of, I guess, being open to owning up to what went wrong.
1: I mean, I think that they're you know both government and the RCMP are saying the right things. The question is going to be: Do they enact the recommendations? Do they take them to heart when they finally get them? Um, the RCMP has made some changes. They have they have passed an order that they are no longer allowed to sell surplus police vehicles and surplus police equipment because that's what this gunman used in his attack. So that's one thing they've already done province of Nova Scotia has already brought in new rules around selling, you know, police uniforms, that kind of thing. But the problem is, un- unless there are national laws, it's very easy for someone to go anywhere else or to go online to buy that stuff. Right. Uh, and Nova Scotia has also brought in changes to the, the way the public alert system is used. So people should know if there is a mass shooting like this again in the province. They should know sooner and they should know immediately on, on their phones that it's happening.
0: Does the RCMP seem worried at all about what might emerge and, and are they cooperating fully? And I ask this question because I recall um, in the weeks and months afterwards, there were a lot of questions being asked and even some reporting being done about the gunman perhaps having connections to the RCMP, being an informant. I don't know how much of that ever proved out, but I wonder if if we'll get an answer to that one way or another with this. Uh, that's one of the
1: one of the... Other clouds hanging over this inquiry are, is just how much the RCMP will cooperate. Of course, they're going to be compelled to cooperate to a certain extent. But even this morning, the lawyer for, for RCMP officers, she told the commission that no officers should be forced to testify because it's too traumatic for them to relive these events. They should not have to answer questions in a public forum about mistakes that were made. That's her argument.
0: I would love to hear the community's response to that argument. You can just imagine
1: how communities are going to respond to that. They will not accept that as an argument. Um, The whole point of this inquiry is to have a full accounting, to have people come and in a public forum answer questions. So so using trauma uh, as a reason to not do that, I don't think is going to fly for these families. So you're right. There's still a lot of questions about what police knew ahead of time, decisions that they made during the the attack information they withheld afterwards that that doesn't make a lot of sense there's a lot of people hopeful they they're finally going to be forced to answer this stuff up but until now they've kind of closed the door they said look we have to respect the inquiry process we refuse to discuss any of these questions until we have an answer so they're waiting like everybody for this inquiry
0: to to work its way through last question then what will you be watching for specifically uh, over the coming weeks I will be I will be watching to see if Lisa Banfield is subpoenaed
1: to testify she is a key witness at the heart of this story and if they use their subpoena power uh, and and compel her to testify what happens because until her criminal charges are resolved, her lawyers are are telling her not to cooperate that is a tension that is not going to go away until one side relents so that's going to be a, a key question in this in this inquiry for sure
0: Greg, thank you so much for this as always and uh Keep at it. My pleasure, Jordan. Thanks. Greg Mercer covers Atlantic Canada for The Globe and Mail. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Talk to us via email, thebigstorypodcast, that is all one word, at rci.rogers.com. It is hard to inject levity into the end of these episodes when every one of them seems to be tragic. So forgive me. You can find The Big Story everywhere you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, doesn't matter. Listen to us on smart speakers by saying, play The Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story.